I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. It is that Florida, that's a downside, yeah. I'm sure it's, there are nice people in Florida. But that, sure. that that's actually a point somebody makes at one point, that it's almost impossible for somebody from Florida to make it into the good place. <laughs> <laughs> Just, and he's like, oh, he's from Florida. At one point. Um, I found out that there's, um, Vince McMahon is going to have a rival professional wrestling company. Oh, finally. And a lot of big people are sliding onto it. And the one of the crazy things with it is that... They're going to have health insurance, and they're not going to be contractors the way they are for – like, if you work for WWE, you have a contract, and they get to choose every place you work, and you're not allowed to work for other people, but you're still a, a independent contractor who has to pay for your own um, travel expenses Man, and your own – Mr. Mr. McMahon only gives out the 1099s. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you have to do your own oh, insurance. and what even a the, dick. You're technically an – you're not an employer or a contractor, so even though they get to choose uh, – they get to own the name that you work under – and, I mean, all of this shit that you have to deal with. So this new company, All Elite Wrestling, based in uh, it... Um, That's not a great name. It's not a bad name. But it, it, they're not afraid to say wrestling, which is... When, it, when I think is. Elite Wrestling, I just think of people with monocles holding, like, champagne flutes. <laughs> it's not like everyone is, crocodile, like, crocodile the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. <laughs> it's like, oh, everyone in the company is an evil rich guy. Yeah. And they're like, ha, 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 burning my money. But it's like, it's they not all have the same gimmick. It's like everyone has a monocle and a top hat. But, um... <laughs> the the you know who the who's bankrolling this? Um, it's not Ted Turner, I take no, it. It's not Ted Turner. Okay, uh, the bankrolling this company. It's the guy named Tony Khan. You know what else Tony Khan owns? Mm-mm. The Jacksonville Jaguars. <laughs> and I, I got so excited about that. It was sad. I'm like, it's, this is a, a football team that I'm only aware exists because of uh, the Good Place. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I got so excited about that. I did watch a little New Japan Pro Wrestling <laughs> after uh, after we had our WrestleMania 19 panel, yeah. and I will say it's a totally different experience for watching different uh, different leagues because certainly what um, Morgan was talking about was like, oh, there's a lot more technical wrestling. So it basically means what the moves you're seeing like they I guess they're really big into the luchadors apparently yeah, there's this a lot, one is well, there's a lot more high flying in yeah. Japan it, than uh, there it is. was pretty impressive there's like there's those guys are doing you know if someone was in the gym doing exercises like this you'd be like whoa those guys are incredible cuz they really really work hard and the audience is so reserved well that's the thing <laughs> so is Japan, reserved. that's the thing with Japan is that uh Japan aside from like a main event they tend to be very quiet I know that one of the things that Japan will do is, like, girls will throw streamers at the wrestlers they really like. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I know, what was his name? Colt Cabana, who's a guy who's really made a good go of it in the Indies. He was in the WWE under the name Scotty Goldman and didn't get promoted at all. And he's mm. like, fuck this. And now he just kind of works independently and works for any any other promotions, has his own podcast, does all sorts of stuff, and makes way more money and has more creative control over himself in the Indies. So he can go to Japan and do stuff. And he said that when he was in Japan, because of the throwing streamer thing, he says, well, I'm not going to be as popular as these other established guys. But at least I can be weird. <laughs> so he goes out there. Something that which the Japanese would appreciate. So he goes out there and pretends to catch streamers that aren't coming to him. <laughs> and it's it's a lot of fun to watch um, him. I mean, that's the thing he does is a lot of the merch that he sells for himself makes fun of inside baseball wrestling stuff. Like there's a bit with him. Um, he, has, he excels a button that just says creative has nothing for you. <laughs> and it's little things like that I think are kind of neat. I, I think that the little touches where, I mean, enough people know the backstage sort of stuff of this, but I think this is the beef I have with professional wrestling in the Vince McMahon era anyways, is that there's no need to keep kayfabe, so to speak. That you're not right. trying to, as you did until like the early 90s, pretend that this is a real sport but the problem though the nice thing that comes with pretending that it's a real sport and and keeping the lie going is that you also have better continuity right that you have to explain things because you don't want to give it away it's not like every so often you know like one of the lighting fixtures almost hits walter white you know like a truman (laughs) show sort of way um so in in the world of wwe if roman reigns wants to come to the ring and talk shit about john cena what is that in the universe of wrestling? Does he have to go to the office and say, I want to request some time to talk and I might get in a fight with him. So I'm going to need 20 minutes. <laughs> um, and then other people come down. If they come down to interrupt somebody else and the person in the back in the, in the truck is playing their music and are they just prepped for any kind <laughs> yes. of interloper? <laughs> they've got, that may possibly they've got a hundred different uh, music tracks, uh, you know, ready to hit play on. These are things that kind of break the reality of it because, I mean, is in the reality of that, was there a lower tier wrestler who didn't get to have a match that night because Roman Reigns wouldn't shut up? (laughs) I mean, is that well? And 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 if the if it were as it was, it would be like uh, you know Americans trying to line up, meaning that we don't queue up very well, and it would just be like sixty wrestlers all at once trying to storm the stage to talk shit about someone. Yeah, like obviously has to be a little more organized than that. Yeah, you have to just like I'm angry, I'm gonna burst onto the stage. But again, this is the difference between that and like the 80s and it's this kind of weird thing because the 80s were never you know quote unquote realistic they had a lot of crazy over the top characters like an evil barber and you know right. the repo man who came and took your stuff and he wore like a <laughs> burglar's mask and a cape that looked like tire tracks it was weird so he was like the hamburglar as a bad guy who'd come and take your shit but I mean that's not realistic. Wait, the Repo Man was not secretly Harry Dean Stanton, was he? No, no. <laughs> Darn it! No, that would have been opportunity. great. He's not nearly that grizzled. But I mean, <laughs> back in the day when you wanted to have a wrestler talk shit about another wrestler, you would basically have Gene Okerlund interview them. That there was a time put aside from the show. It's like, hey, we're going to talk to so and so and ask why. Hey, you you seemed really angry out there. What's that all about? And it acted more like it was a real sport. I mean, I know it's not, but you should pretend like you are, right? Because when you don't, and you're like, wait, what is this story here? What, anyone can just walk out at any time. <laughs> and I know that this show has a set time. 
So is nobody getting pissed backstage going, what the fuck is going on? Or are they just like, eh, go with it. Get, get, have everybody's theme music ready at any given time. <laughs> the show went 15 minutes over and no one wrestled because all yeah. of us was screaming. Because yeah. technically you could just argue with somebody forever. It became a Maury Povich episode without yeah, but any I mean, wrestling. Back in the day, even in like the NWA days in like the seventies and eighties, they would have a separate talk show. Uh, frequently that would be there with an audience and that somebody would interview the wrestlers like Ric Flair would come out and talk about how everyone's a piece of trash and the people in the crowd would boo him and he would like make some crack about some lady's dental work or (laughs) how that guy's fat or I mean he would just do stuff I mean it was that but there was a sense of this time is clearly being set aside to talk trash and build up storylines and otherwise, unless somebody grabbed a microphone during a crazy, you know, impromptu moment right. and said, you know, after like ambushing somebody in the ring, that typically that stuff didn't happen in the middle of the ring with a microphone the way that it does now. Hmm. Where now it, it's, again, it's easy to not, it's not easy to lose yourself into something where you're not really sure what the rules of the universe are. Because it is sort of a Truman Show thing where we're all still going to pretend that it's real, but we all know that it's not. And we don't, it, it's harder to say that this is a scripted moment versus this is a world that just has crazy people in it. Would at any given time, someone could interrupt somebody else and just start arguing with them. And who knows in the universe of this, how long do they think it's going to run? <laughs> I have a match that I build. These people are here to see wrestling. Um, see, this is the stuff that doesn't really make sense. But see, if why, why can't they have Vince McMahon it's, in this universe? Why can't Vince McMahon be a character who's who's constantly being cut cut back to in the booth, being like, "What? This is not a show. Yeah, I have a business to run. It's to like get him off the stage where everyone just airs grievances and never wrestles. Like, get him off. It's so. Speaking of, I don't have any. I don't have. Any, that was the only bit of wrestling stuff that I uh, that I had. Uh, although I did see John Cena as. The bad guy slash good guy from the Bumblebee movie? That is a movie that was way better than it had a right to be. I mean, it was obvious, total, it was nostalgia wall-to-wall. Nostalgia. Well, it's nostalgia wall-to-wall, but it actually has a genuine heart in it, and I think oh, yeah. a lot of that comes to the fact that one, Haley Steinfeld is a great actress. I mean, oh, yeah. We knew that from the time she was in True Grit and was able, I mean, that's a that's a role that's crazy for a 13-year-old to be the emotional weight of a movie yeah. and has to go toe-to-toe with people like Jeff Bridges and has to be somebody that you have to believe that this person is so driven for vengeance. Um, that's a hard thing to pull off. And she did it at 13, and she's still a great actress. And what is she, like 20 now, 18 to 20? Yeah, got to be And she's older. still yeah. bringing a great performance for essentially a franchise that all of us have written off. And they've given it to someone else. The things that I kind of liked in Bumblebee, and this kind of shocked me, one, they brought back the old Transformer noise. Yeah. They limited it to having only three of these robots who are all clearly defined and are colored in a way that if they're on the screen at the same time, you can tell people apart. When they're fighting, it's not confusing. I, I think they prefer Cybertronian American. Cybertronian yes. American. Yes. Sorry. But, uh, Go on. I like that they just keep the Transformers lore type stuff into like a five-minute prologue. And in a lot of ways, I think I've already heard somebody on the internet refer to this. It's a Herbie movie. It, it's a Herbie movie. It's a. It is a little bit of a Iron Giant. Iron Giant. An Iron Giant movie that's there. A little bit of E. T. Yeah. Yes. But there's yeah. a lot of these things kind of coming together. But yeah. the thing with the Herbie movie, I don't. Did you see a lot of those? I was I, a Disney kid. I don't know if I saw the first one ever, but I saw some of them. Okay. It was played on Saturday there's afternoon. Like, there's like four of the original movies, you know, with like Dean Jones back in the day, right. and he was like a down and out race car driver. They all followed the same sort of formula that plays into Bumblebee, which is you have someone who's kind of in a down part of their life, 
and they meet this this little robot car thing that's like living car that that is kind of spunky and kind of complicates their life but also kind of helps them sort of get to a better place in their life and there's something he's, kind of he's sweet the and curious endearing. he's the curious george of cars of automobiles he is there's yeah. something kind of sweet and endearing about this robot um and the fact that he transforms into a bug and i think this was always the big mistake of making him a camaro right is that there's something about the shape of a volkswagen beetle that if you put those shapes on a robot that make it softer and make it right. look kinder and also there's nothing there's something that that makes a giant robot less threatening than the iconography of a beetle. The yeah. Volkswagen is just, I mean, that was always that, a thing. That played with, into the fact that I think that they very intentionally, and I think very effectively gave the sort of the visage, the face of the character, a very expressive and sympathetic uh, mean, I guess you could yeah. say. Cause those eyes, I mean, there's literally just like heart tugging, you know, ch- choking back the tears moments that are just so sweet. And you're like, well, they just did this with a, they did this with the same CGI that in the previous Transformer movies is the type of thing that makes you have a seizure. It's an assault on the senses. It's the, it's the same, it's the same thing, except in this one, it was used not to sort of overwhelm your, your nervous system to make you go into catatonic shock. Seriously, it was used to make you feel something. Without, without saying <laughs> wow. anything about those older Transformers movies, it really, those ones felt a lot like, um, that scene with Alex DeLarge has his eyes peed open in <laughs> Clockwork yes. Orange and they make him make him watch that movie. That's what it feels like a lot of them because you're getting hit with too many things at once. The imagery in those ones is so confusing. It just hits you over and over. Everything is loud. The transformation scenes, it's just kind of like it's like you. T- it's like if I took a paper doll of a robot, and then I crump literally crumpled the robot up, and then when I pulled my hands away, there was a trick and there was a car there. Um, that's what it looked like, but this one, it felt like there was a real effort to make the Transformers, not only Bumblebee, but the two Decepticons, look like they were actually changing into those things, and it didn't feel like a bunch of crazy triangles took over the screen. Yeah, for a like, there, well, that, like that there was like a thousand Rube Goldberg machines going at once inside yeah. this massive metal, which is what the but other it, one But it like. felt sort of humanized, and even the robots had characters, and that was the beef I had with a lot of them, is that in aside from like Optimus Prime and Bumblebee in the the michael bay ones they all felt interchangeable and it didn't feel that way like even the bad guys one of the bad guys um because i know one of them is like angela bassett doing the voice of a robot i know i know which was kind of crazy but i think it was the other one who's kind of kill crazy who liked the way that humans blew up when he zapped them <laughs> yeah i mean that's way more personality than these things have gotten before and really they're just kind of the thing that pulls him into the second phase of iron giant which is remembering who you are and having to reconcile the fact that you can turn your hand into a gun with the fact that you're kind of a fun robot that wants to help this young girl get over the death of her father and sort of rediscover things that she loves in her life yeah i there was there was a lot that are is praiseworthy for a movie that uh, you know, if if this were just yet another Michael Bay sequel to the whatevers, it would have been we would have shrugged our shoulders and never never talked about it. We wouldn't have even talked about it. Like, have you and I ever mentioned the last night? No, got, no, because we we both haven't seen it. There's only a probably couple, not going to see it. I'm no, I'm never going to see it. But no. there's a couple noteworthy things about that movie that I've only found out by looking at the internet after it came out. Uh, one is that um, Merlin is a character in the in a flashback sequence in that movie, I believe, played by Stanley Tucci. Um, and there is some reference in the movie, apparently, the Tucci to uh, the Transformers having been in the past allies of Harriet Tubman. 
Okay. And I think I saw some think piece that was just thumbing its nose at this and making fun of this fact. It's like trying to make something more relevant. It's like, did the Autobots do enough to help the Underground Railroad (laughs) as a think piece? We're just really making fun of this, which is, wait a minute, if, if, if we had transforming robots to fight slavery... That war would have been over a fuck tone <laughs> faster. And by the way, if these things have these machines internally that they scan a real life vehicle and then transform into that. You become a horse of the cart. Yeah. Do you yeah. just become the cart though? <laughs> or do you have a robot horse? <laughs> yes, of course. Do you, you have, have to wait? Robot. You're like, you have, a ro- you have a robot train. It's like if, if Optimus ste- Prime just turned into the trailer. <laughs> no, you have those steam powered uh, fire engines. Oh yeah. But you have to get on a, on a track. Yeah. Yeah, oh, the, right. oh, the car ones. Yeah. Because, I mean, it isn't really Big until, like the, ni- like, the early, early 1900s that you get any kind of automobile. And even then, you're not getting that very far on that thing very fast. You could probably run alongside it pretty well. Oh. Uh, oh, well, John Cena. Sorry. I was go back to where yeah, I John was. Cena. John Cena. Um, I, he's all right. He's, there's, there's always a, a an undertone of, like... Just pure schmaltz yeah. to all of the delivery, which I think is something you probably pick up being a, a professional wrestler because mm-hmm. everything's a wink and a nod. Everything has oh, got to be loves goofy. His schmaltz. Yeah. So in that respect, I was like, "That's fine." I, 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 uh, I don't know, John Cena. I would. He was I, the weakest he, he part a, of the movie, not because I think of Cena, but because of the way they wrote his character. Because sure. it was the typical, you know, there's the scientist who wants to understand things, and then there's a uh, the guy who just wants to blow it up. Right. The weird thing, and this is the part that kind of subverted a little bit that I liked in Bumblebee, is they had Cena be right, but right, right in a very specific way that is unnuanced, and the nuance is what he has to learn, which is he's the one that says we shouldn't trust the Decepticons and actually says they are literally called Decepticons. <laughs> and that that guy who wants to hand over all of our intelligence infrastructure to the Decepticons to find this supposed uh, criminal bumblebee um, – that guy gets blown away because he realizes that he's handed over all of this shit to evil robots from space. You know, and in that sense, it was be like, oh, this is a ridiculous movie. But then again, you know, it's a, it's a cartoon about toys. And of course, I also remember I read the first 50 or so issues of the Marvel Transformers series. And that's that, that kind of shit is straight out of comic book idea, right? Yeah. Because you're just sort of being like, well, of course, we're going to hand over the most powerful military nation's defenses over to two alien robots. Sure. Fine. I think their argument actually was, you know, they might go to the Soviet Union. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, that was always that thing. It's just like, let's be, we're so untrusting that we're going to be super trusting. But again, that, that, that was a weaker part of the movie. But again, it's about the Transformers, so the Decepticons have to come into the plot somewhere. And I do kind of like the idea of of him being sort of a sweet, innocent robot who has to remember how to be a fighter again. But that there's kind of these warring elements inside of him where he goes into kill mode and his arm turns into a cannon. But he's still that robot that befriended this young girl. And he has to sort of be both of these things at once. He was also a little bit R2-D2. There's a bit (laughs) R2-D2 in there. There was something kind of sweet in He was a very huggable robot. Yeah. And I was actually shocked of all these big budget you know, franchise movies I saw this year, um, Bumblebee was way higher on that list than I ever would have guessed. Yeah. That I was thinking this is like a disposable movie that I was going to skip. If not for, again, the fact that I basically have a subscription thing to this theater I chain, um, I basically went to it for free. Right. 
And I was pleasantly surprised. And it's a movie that I think is the same kind of problem we mentioned with Star Trek Beyond. Star Trek Beyond is sort of having to overcome the negative gravity of the movie that preceded it. That Star Trek um, Into Darkness had sort of the, the wind at its back because a lot of people were very positive about the first Abrams movie. And then there was kind of a growing sense of dissatisfaction with with Into Darkness, and that plus a really bad trailer made people not see it. I think that the the Michael Bay uh, Transformers movies are sort of this unanimous whipping boy of big-budget cinema, that even the people who will fight to the fucking death and be down to teeth and nails fighting over, you know, Batman v. Superman, even them, they'll join in the circular um, firing squad on the Michael Bay Transformers movies. We'll all sort of put our sides because we've all sort of unanimously decided these movies are shit. And right. that is a hard thing to overcome if it, you're trying to do something different. It is. And all credit to – I mean, I think – I think perhaps the reason, and I didn't see anything any Transformers past the first one, so uh, I can only I can only sort of take a sidelong shot at them out of a place of ignorance, basically like most of the internet is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they you can say, well, they are. It's kind of like the an example of the most cynical kind of movie making because it is really the most cynical kind of mini- movie making. It is also like the it's all of Michael Bay's bad habits condensed into one it's, series. It's, but it's the bad habits of big budget movie making because the idea is spectacle over everything else, and also the really terrible product placements. And There's a course, lot of really kind of ugly sort of like male gazy misogyny in there. Yeah. There's a lot of really raw, raw go army kind of stuff that feels like one of those kid rock commercials you used to watch <laughs> before. I mean, it's, it's sort of aggressive in a really early aughts kind of way. And it's just, it, all of this stuff together, just fe- it, again, it's a movie series of the aughts where it's this stuff. The only thing it doesn't and, have is a limp biscuit soundtrack. And, and of course, our connection with the Abrams Star Trek movies is written by Orsi and Kurtzman oh, as geez. well. So there's the, there is the connection to just being like, oh, uh, I'd, I'd say, I'd say Bumblebee doesn't make me, I'd, I'd probably let Elliot watch my, my five-year-old watch Bumblebee at some point. Cause I think it's good. I mean, I think it's, I think it's sweet and it's not too much overload. Um, it's not going to make me go back and be like, hmm, now I'm going to give the other Transformers movies no. a second chance. No, no. it's not going to happen. This is like finding out, this is like, oh, hey, there's a good Alec Baldwin movie. I'm going to watch all the movies with Steven. <laughs> no, no. Um, this is a, this is a weird outlier. And I would say, this is the only Transformers movie worth watching that I've ever seen. And I've seen parts of the other ones. I saw the first live one action in theaters. Live action right. ones. Yeah. I still have a weird affection for the 80s one, and I think I might be too close yeah, to Yeah, I don't know how good of a movie it really is. I don't know. I, I, think, that's I, was, I was thinking that, so that one, we definitely need to have a stay tuned for yeah. a versus the Martians show. And also, this one too, Dick Tracy. Oh, I from was, the 90s? Yeah, I was so close to, because I loved Batman 89, and of course... That was also a incredibly cynical decision on the part of Disney executives to be like, "Well, we need to have another like 1930s era comic book character that's has a, some grit to it." But I'll I'll say this for for Dick Tracy, and I've not seen it in forever, so I can't really judge it. 
one that's a crazy awesome cast. Oh yeah. Um it so I do I like probable cast. I like sort of the visual styling of it. I like the bright fluorescent colors of it. I like having mobsters and these like bright purple, yellow and like like burgundy suits and I, I a lot of that stuff is very fun. It's a very cartoon gangsters. And I think there is an element of of uh passion project from Warren Beatty in that movie. I haven't seen it in forever, so I can't come to its full defense in the same way that I can with another movie I just re-saw recently, which was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is oh, yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah. That's great. Uh, that's another one I want to cover on the show at some point. But, yeah, I think as far as, like, big budget, like, franchise movies, um, I really liked Bumblebee. And I think what I liked about it is it broke from a lot of the things you get from these franchises, which it really limits its connection to the overall franchise. It focuses on a personal story. It's a Transformers movie where you don't hate the humans. Um, because <laughs> right. that's an element is that the character that Shia LaBeouf plays makes you not like Shia LaBeouf, the actor, even though he's not writing his own dialogue. Right. But there's something kind of like just entitled and angry and petulant and awful about his character. I would, as I would say insufferable. That would insufferable. Be the, and yes. you're supposed to think he's the greatest thing in the world. So it feels like the movie's gaslighting you to a certain expense. It's like, am I the only person who hates this son of a bitch? Um, but the thing I like is that Haley Steinfeld's character is incredibly likable. And even though her family starts out as sort of insufferable, you sort of see them in a better light, that they get to step up and be good. Yeah. And I think there was like a bit, too, where the the stepdad, who's kind of a doofus throughout most of the movie, is able to sort of protect her by getting his car in the station wagon with <laughs> yes. the family in the way of like the military jeeps and sort of weaving back and forth so they can't pass him. And he openly says that it's like something he saw in like Miami Vice. Yeah. Just <laughs> and I was like things like that. Like he's obviously trying, right. and I kind of like that. Yeah. I like the fact that they they managed to make these characters human and likable, where it isn't just like oh god, I'm bored whenever the robots aren't on screen. Well, the the character of Memo, who is the sort of uh, um, unrequited. Oh, the boy next door, yeah, boy lover next door. He's who's supposed to be the geek. He has the most well crafted uh, torso of the kind of geek he should be. He should look like me. He should be really, really doughy around the middle. He'd be the schlubby. Yes, he shouldn't. But he should uh, be that kind of geek. Not basically what's a a teen bop pinup pinup kid who's like eighteen years old with like a really good physique. I not really that like kind of, not that kind of physique. This is a bit of a spoiler for the movie. I like one of the things I really loved in this movie is them not going the predictable route of oh their boyfriend girlfriend now and there's right. a bit at the end where they're talking and he sort of kind of goes for holding her hand and she goes nope we're not there yet <laughs> and it just cuts it off and i was like that is really fucking refreshing because it's like we have known each other for like three days <laughs> i mean real it's like it it's that we were so used to this formula over and over again she's like yeah we're not there yet we're friends now um you help me fight some robots that's that was awesome. Thank you for stepping up, but I'm not your girlfriend. <laughs> and I think that's kind of cool. I mean, because I, I think, honestly, nowadays, that if there's ever an element that I want to take out of most movies nowadays, that formula, it's the obligatory romantic plot. Yeah, because you you don't believe in romance, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I hate everybody. But um, the thing that I found with it, though, is it seems so forced in. Oh, it's, all, it's usually always really obviously and, forced in because the expectation is that you make... 
the movie for a male audience and you have to throw a bone to the fact that someone's going to bring their wife or girlfriend. There's there a girl as well. and it's, prize it's as just, part of the character arc. But the thing I kind of like in, in this and honestly in Force Awakens too did this, which is that, you know, the, there's an element of somebody has a crush on someone else and nothing just happens. And it's okay to be friends. It's okay that you don't have to force that shit in. And I find it really refreshing because oftentimes that's the most hackneyed forced part of any of these movies that somebody would fall in love with somebody over the course of just running from a monster with them. Well, and I think to some, to some extent that if it, it would, those, those times do actually work if the actors are well matched for each other. Mm -hmm. And it almost makes it even better if there is a great chemistry between two actors and they do have that, like, okay, but we're not going to throw a forced romance in here just because this is what a Hollywood script should actually do. That's the other um, thing I like with... Movies do get away with it because you do have two really great actors and mm -hmm. they're able to they're synergize really well with each other. It makes it even better if it's sort of like, oh, that could be. What could it be, you know? Yeah. What is it that, what is it that I was heard someone say that the biggest casualty of in cinemas is the viewer's imagination, Yeah. right? And the problem is, is that we're getting too much of what they think well, we that's, want. This is us. This is the downside of the nerds winning the culture war is that we live in a world now where everyone consumes stuff as a geek. The upside of that is that we don't have to have things spoon-fed to us in the same way that we used to before, that we don't have to have, you know, we have a much more savvy audience that doesn't have to go, wait, who is that? What is that? We expect people to be much more engaged in what characters and previous relationships are, but also, I mean, not just from a serialized storytelling standpoint, but we don't have to explain time travel and other, you know, nerdy stuff. Right. That we used to have to spend... We don't have to explain electromagnetic pulse railguns. Yeah, we don't have to, like, sit <laughs> it down where somebody oh has God. to show... That people can just kind of run with it, and they're fine with it, even if they don't understand certain things. But also, I think there's a need to want, among a lot of fans, to understand the things inside of the story and go, oh, hey, that's attached to this, and this is an Easter egg and all that. Right. That stuff's fun, but it can also overtake... Um, something where you're spending so much time building the next few movies that you don't satisfactorily make the movie you're making right now. Yeah, and that obviously that was a that was one of the many problems that I had with the new Fantastic Beasts movie as yeah. well, which was to me such a huge missed opportunity. Yeah. for setting up what I thought was a really great the Newt Scamander character, the Eddie Redmayne character, is such a great atypical male hero type. Yeah, and the and, fact that he's not somebody who is out to fight crime or anything like that, that this is a guy who just loves and cares for animals yeah. that people would honestly go, oh, God, it's a thing, shoot it. And I think that's the thing with this character is that he's somebody that sees the value of things, that he loves and wants to care for things. And they, well, and then, of course, when they throw a sequel in there, I mean, of course, they have to, f they hamstring the characters, the sort of, the quartet of characters from the first one to smush them back together and some of it's not very very graceful but i mean they kind of ended up doing what i think was sort of a peter jackson the hobbit hobbiting of mm. that story is fantastic beast did really feel very different from the harry potter movies and i think maybe they mentioned dumbledore once because newt, yes. newt, newt scamander really liked him as his teacher we knew we knew that as that was a lone connection that was it that was like this is why Batman. This is why Superman works alone. That was like that was the only. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. Batman and Robin. Um, like that was the only. They only had one call out, a call out of uh, the dialogue. And in this one, 
they are clearly setting up a you know yet another confrontation with but they're also least, tying it least much favorite more actor the... Johnny Depp and and oh, for future movies but the, yeah and they're also oh here's here's Dumbledore he's actually on screen and oh there's going to be a battle and oh I'm sure Voldemort or whatever the uh what what will precede Vol- Voldemort will be sort of up there it's just like trying to make the necromancer the you know, Sau- Sauron sort of thing. Yeah, there's it's- a problem with it is that you end up spending so much time doing backstory for the thing that you already did that people love. And it can have the same problem that you had with the Peter Jackson Hobbit movies is the more of that stuff you cram in, the less the central character is the central character. What you're taking away from is Newt Scamander or Bilbo Baggins. Yeah. That, I- it's not their story anymore, that they're just kind of standing there kind of stuck in this current of all of this backstory that they never get the opportunity to understand or appreciate. And that's the thing that bugs me because I know we've both talked about this. I don't know if we've talked about this a lot on this show, but Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them was great. It was awesome. And it was great because it did the thing that we frequently ask spinoffs to do, which is it expands the world. It takes you to a new place. It gives you a character who isn't tied into the backstory of Harry Potter that he, when he's in the United States, he's in the 1920s. Uh, he's on something that isn't about a dark wizard or, you know, the he who shall not be named or any of that stuff. It's right. just about him wanting to release, uh, this rare animal that most of the people in his community don't appreciate and they think is dangerous into um, some place where it would be safe. And then shenanigans happen and all of his stuff gets all over the place. And it's him trying to protect something. Even when he faces that monster thing at the end, he does the thing that no one else in the wizard world wants to do, which is he wants to try to understand it. And that's why he wins. That the thing that makes him different is the thing that makes him the person who can save the day when everyone else just wants to shoot at it mm-hmm. and would have made the situation worse. That's a great standalone story. So if you're going to do a sequel to that, either have a completely new character and do that again in a different location with a different thing, expand the world that it doesn't have to be attached to Hogwarts in any way that you only have one character who, like you said, mentions Dumbledore once and he went there a while ago and he's an adult now. That's a difference between him and Harry. He's an adult. He's not a kid. And that's a great way to expand it. Is this, this is the deep space nining that yep. we want to see. Yep. And you are allowed to have a different tone. You're going, hey, what is it like to be a wizard in America? How is that different? And have fun stuff with that. And also make it a period piece. This is all great. And then in a sequel, they just cram all that stuff that they they do all the time with every other franchise, which is make it all about backstory for Dumbledore, make it all about trying to connect all of this backstory stuff. Who's the secret relative of who. Right. And (laughs) that's all stuff that isn't interesting. And this is the thing where in a weird sort of way with the last Jedi, how we were spared of that with Ray just being a, a pair of people who just sold her for drinking money, yeah. how that's so much more interesting and gives you so many more opportunities with that character because this is what we expect. We expect everyone to be a secret relative of an important person, that anyone important in the story is important because of who their parents were. And that is just mm. boring. Yeah, I was. I just had a thought, spontaneous thought, if you wanted to take what made Fantastic Beasts great by being separate, uh, separate go back to the first book, Sorcerer's Stone, and find the reference to Fantastic Beasts and where to find them by Newt Scamander. And there's like six other textbooks. And just do a movie for each of those textbooks. Yeah. Have the author be a character and ha- have it be in some time 
where wherever and whenever it is and make something crazy that happens. Yeah. Why not do that? Why not do that? People are still going to go see it. It's still the it's still that's what makes universe. it more dangerous. Is it's a risk, and now we have to have established characters yeah. because it's such a battle to make your money back. Because it's not just about making back your production cost. It's like you pay just as much promoting this thing. So it becomes almost impossible for movies to be considered profitable, even if they make more than the GDP of several countries. (laughs) It's crazy. Um, The idea of what it takes to be considered a profitable movie, um, you can make a hundred million dollars and still considered a flop. That's crazy. But again, Take a risk with this sort of stuff. You want the longevity, longativity. Yes, these well, are, I get what you're saying. Again, this is yes. a, these are examples of words that I write down but don't have to say out loud very often. Um, if you want these things to exist in the long term, these, these are the risks you have to take. If you want to burn out fast and make people go, "Oh, this is just a cynical cash in." Then don't tell these standalone stories. And you know what? Maybe there is a Newt Scamander sequel, but it should be a Newt Scamander story. It isn't, let's just cram Newt Scamander into a typical Harry Potter story. Right. Because Harry Potter is the chosen one who's been hunted by the Dark Lord. Right. Newt Scamander isn't. Newt Scamander is not that chosen one. He should be totally insignificant to Grindelwald. Like, Grindelwald is like, who cares? It should be something (laughs) involving. He's not powerful. He doesn't, not, not someone who I need to oppose. It should be a story about magical animals. Yeah. I mean, he essentially is Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> yes. He's he's Dr. Doolittle mixed with Dr. Who. And what's crazy about this is that go in that direction, make it all about how he's different in this very specific way from everyone else and make it where he can... The other bit I really loved in that original movie is having a muggle as a character. Yeah. Who isn't yeah. just an awful, like, you know, Dursley... Wait, aside from isn't the, isn't the caretaker of Hogwarts a muggle? Oh, here's where I, I open up my my thing. He's a squib. A squib. Yeah, you strap him onto somebody <laughs> in a You'd Paul shot. Verhoeven movie <laughs> to shoot out blood. Yeah. No, he um, is a not a magical person born to magical parents. Oh. So he's aware of that world. He isn't like somebody who they found him on LinkedIn. They're like, <laughs> hey, you want to work in a crazy castle with full of children? And oh, by the way, magic's real. <laughs> And but here's an NDA. <laughs> that was that was also the guy who was uh, the Red Wedding. Yes, right. it was. I He's, can't remember the actress name. And he in the last Christmas special they did of Doctor Who, he played uh, the first Doctor. Oh, really? The William Hartnell one. So they had him team up with him. Nice. And actually did a really good job. Um, it's, it's he plays a super great, super cranky old man. Yes, yes. It, he's I, he may be a cranky old man, <laughs> but yeah, it's um, it's a lot of fun. I, I think it's great. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.
Starts. Transform and roll out. 